Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Darren King. Darren, I look forward to these episodes. Uh, I look forward to doing this show with you, especially when there's a lot to talk about. Uh, and we seem to have an abundance. As we were going through our list before the show, uh, I was initially worried we didn't have enough, but the list kept growing to the point where I'm not sure we're going to get through it all. So that, to me, signals we're going to have a good one. Uh, before we get to it, before we get into it, I want to catch up with you, check in with you. How, how's it going? I know you recently uh, completed your first Essence of Being class, which I was fortunate enough to be a participant in, really enjoyed that. But how was it for you and uh, what, what else has been going on? Well, that was absolutely a really rewarding experience, really fascinating experience to see how the work that we've done on this podcast, for instance, as we were just saying before we went on the air, has kind of primed the opportunity for a class like that. I think a lot of people have gathered around the conversations we have because it resonates with people and how we bring in different elements, religious history, spiritual energetic dynamics, and even the nuts and bolts stuff and trying to investigate how it all fits together. What is happening in the world? What is happening cosmically? All these are questions I think we really are comfortable with on this show. And I think we've gathered a group of people around us who also feel that way. So that really was who showed up at the class from all around the world. And it was a beautiful experience. I am so thankful for it and so thankful for the quality and the caliber of the people that showed up and what dynamically arose in the context of the class too, that I was just running with as it happened. So as I've mentioned in a recent interview, for instance, while I do prepare a curriculum, so much of it comes down to being alive to what is present in the moment. And when you have people that are ready to do that same thing, then you have this kind of synchronistic orchestration that happens. It's so profound. It can really transform people's lives. On the one hand, it makes you realize all the more that why aren't we already wired this way? Why don't we live our lives this way? Why isn't community structured this way? Because when you see it happen, manifest, it is so powerful and so resonant for people and feels so natural, so organic in many ways. So it was a beautiful experience and I'm really looking forward to doing another version of the class early in the new year and then like a second level class later on and the retreats I'm really excited about, meeting people in person. That's always a really dynamic experience as well. So yeah, there's a lot going on and how this all fits together with what's going on in our world as we speak. Absolutely. I think we have plenty of bullet points to fill an hour and a half. No doubt about it. It's, uh, it's an exciting time. really is. And if you're a fan of this topic, you are probably feeling some of that excitement. Uh, there's also been, you know, the roller coaster that I think we've been going through as well. Uh, and we'll get to some of that in the bullet points that, that we've got here. But I want to get started with something that felt fairly historic. Uh, and that was this gathering of folks in California for the inaugural Soul Conference uh, Symposium. And uh, we've heard little tidbits about the conference and, and some of the talks that have been given and the the takeaway that I've received from people that have been there is uh, kind of a renewed vigor and enthusiasm and commitment to the reality that this is happening. And I also heard that it was very electrifying seeing all of these different individuals from different disciplines and different professional careers, all presenting talks on the same topic 
as if it is happening, as it's a very real thing that it is, we're on the cusp of it being known throughout the world as a, as an accepted part of our reality. Uh, so it sounded very transformative. It, it felt like a very historic thing. Uh, and there's a lot of pieces to, I think, what would happen there. But what what were your takeaways from from your conversations with, with folks who had, had attended? Yeah, I think it was a turning point. I think it was a, a crossing of a threshold in the sense that, as you kind of hinted at there, in our world, we kind of have some conferences that are more about experiencers and are very much about sort of firsthand encounters with the beings and trying to consider all of the different implications of the different kinds of life forms that may be here. And then you have really dry academic conferences that maybe are really taken with the question of, is there even a there there? Is there something to speak about here? What was different about the Soul Symposium was that it began with the premise that this is a real thing, this is happening, this has been happening, this is demonstrated in a variety of ways, including through the sciences, the traditional sciences, the hard sciences. And so having this coming together of former government people, you know, people in the social sciences, people in the hard sciences, all joining together to speak about this from different perspectives was really profound and compelling. And the takeaway I heard was that there was a sense amongst some people in the crowd who were still expecting kind of, is this a thing and, and what is the evidence for this being a thing, actually being taken by the fact that this was assumed this was a thing, that the evidence is so compelling that we've, we've crossed that point already. And that's sort of yesteryear. And so a lot of people kind of walked away with some shock, also just realizing this is a thing, full stop. So I think it was the beginning of an academic engagement with this topic that's really exciting. I know that with my work with the John Mack Institute, we also sense this. We're getting more and more academics that are reaching out, saying, I'd love to be involved. How can I be involved? How can I be a part of the research you're going to do in the new year? So absolutely, there's increased academic engagement. And it's kind of a, a virtuous cycle because as there's more engagement, it normalizes this topic throughout academia and that helps to open up new possibilities. I still know some people who are absolutely studying this, but having to do it as part of the invisible college because they don't feel comfortable yet and they might not have tenure yet. So they kind of have to walk a tightrope there, but no doubt this is a different era. And I think the academic engagement is only one part of what needs to go on, but it's really exciting to see that happening. Absolutely. Well, the phrase that really jumped out following the conference that I think took a lot of airtime in the community was the phrase catastrophic disclosure. And I didn't put that in our conversation before the show because I just wanted to drop that uh, here. Catastrophic disclosure. Uh, there's been just, a, as I guess we would expect there would be a fixation on a phrase like that because we tend to have uh, a fixation with disaster uh, and, and catastrophe. We can't look away. And it sounds very bad, catastrophic disclosure, versus, in comparison, the controlled disclosure. And so th there's th this debate, uh, you know, will we have controlled disclosure or will we have catastrophic disclosure? What does catastrophic disclosure mean? And, and for my impression, of the initial reactions to that phrase was that people took that to mean bad, bad things like uh, like people dying in the streets and like I don't know maybe aliens showing up and hurting people. Um, that's not the reaction that I personally felt to it to that that phrase. I think catastrophic disclosure for me feels like 
it's something that uh, is is beyond the scope of our ability to predict how it will how it will unfold. Uh, that that the populace hasn't been prepared enough to handle whatever the truth may be, and we can talk about what that might be, um, and that it has a rippling effect, an uncontrolled explosion, in other words, versus controlled disclosure, which essentially is what we already have in our reality now, and that is controlled reality, what our media, what our governments want us to think about the world. So how do you think about the, those two phrases, and is that the right way to think about the path that we're on? It's a great question, and I'm glad you brought it up. And yeah, you would think about it, and you might think that the term like disruptive disclosure might be more in line with what people are concerned about. The term catastrophic disclosure is certainly an eye-catcher uh, because it's such a it's such an overwhelmingly shocking kind of statement to make that if you don't have this controlled disclosure, the other alternative is catastrophic disclosure. But to the point you're making, I often bring up this point where I say, this is the one topic that leaves no other topic unscathed. And I think that applies here because this does lead to the biggest questions about our origin, our place in the universe, what it means to be human, what happens after bodily death. These questions all come in here. And again, for a lot of people who are in the nuts and bolts crowd or who are just entering into this conversation, they might be completely confused at this point. How are these related? But they are. And once you start following these rabbit holes, that's where you end up. And so I think in that sense, think about an atomic explosion and basically you have this dynamic process that gets completely out of control. This is kind of what happens here. The concern is that not only the known unknowns, but the unknown unknowns in terms of the nature of the information and how that might metabolize into society in a variety of ways. And so there really is no other topic that government has to approach in such a way that it could fundamentally undermine the structures of modern societies, even sophisticated, supposedly sophisticated modern Western societies. So this is, I think, what's in play here. And for government people, for bureaucrats and politicians, catastrophic means out of your ability to manage, basically, is what it comes down to. You think about narratives and getting ahead of the curve, the way politicians think. They're always trying to be aware of those kinds of things. And what this bodes is the possibility of something that completely is so out of their wheelhouse that it's not even something they necessarily can control or respond to if it does get to that point, which highlights Carl Nell's presentation and his sense that we really do need to focus on this five, 10-year kind of rollout so that we do keep it within the bounds of control disclosure rather than ending up with catastrophic disclosure. Mm. So you're saying this wouldn't be a, we're merely having it toilet paper shortage at the grocery store situation. Uh, yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, the I remember that, uh, I recall that Chris Mellon also wrote a piece uh, following the conference, um, I think recalibrating to some degree his own perspective on his uh, advocacy uh, related to some aspects of this. Uh, and you know, I was having a conversation about that article with uh, my co-host DJ. And, you know, for me, and we've, I think, talked about this to a certain degree on the show before, but, but I've always been of the of the mind that there's parts of the narrative that you can control, but once certain aspects of the narrative are revealed to be true, there are other aspects waiting in the shadows that you can't easily control, and 
you know, namely here, what I'm speaking about are things like abductions uh, and hybridization and agreements and killing of people who uh, who may have been trying to reveal what what they knew about these programs. And so, uh, I think that has to be part of the calculus that the government is making or should make when they consider what to tell the people, because imagine, if you will, folks, if they roll out one of these bodies that they supposedly have on cold storage or whatever, and they look a lot like the bodies that we've heard the abductees talk about. Well, what what do you think that that's going to do? Uh, How many people have had those experiences who haven't shared the experiences? So then we're getting into territory that we don't quite know what we'll be dealing with. So uh, I, I appreciate uh, the the analysis that that uh, Chris has brought to the conversation. I think he's really one of the most careful thinkers about all of this, uh, and I, and I'm grateful for that because we need folks who are willing to look at this with that kind of level of responsibility. It's not just about satisfying our curiosity. It's m- much more than that, and we have to be mindful of those ramifications. Absolutely, and one of the parts I liked about Chris's presentation that was also republished in the debrief as an article was reckoning with the other societal, civilization-wide challenges we are facing and this kind of conflux of issues that are coming together. We didn't even talk in our preamble here before we got on the show about AI, but again, that's a specter that's front and center right now. We've got these looming geopolitical crises and reposturing And again, it's very easy to fall into the rut of assuming that because we've managed to avoid nuclear annihilation and a nuclear war on a widespread scale, that we will always do so. But actually, as we pointed out in the show before, as time goes on and more and more actors, including not necessarily nation state actors, gain access to that kind of weaponry, the chances go up over time that you'll end up with some sort of nuclear exchange. So rather than looking at it and go, phew, we got past the Cold War. I'm thankful for that. That actually was the least of the concerns we might have in terms of how the nuclear equation plays into our future. Again, and that's without even considering how these others have tried to make us so aware of this level of insanity that we're operating under. So when you think about the Seoul Symposium, you think about what's happening right now where the Senate and the House are trying to come to some sort of a final arrangement before this bill hopefully gets passed into law. And you think about these other challenges we're facing. And like I said in the most recent POC episode, add to that this ramping up of contact and interaction with these others. I think about my own life, speaking as one experiencer, and the amount of serendipitous, synchronistic orchestration that seems to be ever-increasing it really does feel like we're heading towards some sort of apex moment, some singularity, if you will, that's broader than just the technological singularity that people sometimes talk about. But it makes it a really interesting time to be alive. And I would say to people, rather than being overwhelmed by that and that stoking fear, actually think about how you can meet this moment with curiosity and open-mindedness and expansion. That's what I would say to people. But absolutely, what a time to be alive. And getting back to the thing about bullet points, there are hundred more than we could even get to in this conversation because there's so many aspects that are consequential and related to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about the sort of legislation, that was a, a very hot topic. I remember over kind of the Thanksgiving break as I was uh, dining with, with extended family, there was a great deal of advocacy in the community for 
making sure that the legislation made its way uh, into the final NDAA, and that that still conversation is still ongoing, as we know. Uh, there was a uh, a Burchett amendment that was introduced in the House. It was a I think a one page sort of a piece of, of of legislation that received a lot of I don't know. I don't know what to say hate, but there's a lot of folks that are like, this is not this is not sufficient enough because the scope in that particular uh, proposal was too narrow uh, versus the the highly detailed uh, legislation that had been prepared by by Schumer rounds. Uh, we've come to find out that that Burchett piece was not meant to replace the other one, but really meant to sort of make its way into the final version. And it's my opinion that the final version will be worked out in conference. Uh, there will be things that are going to be kept in that and things that we probably will lose. Uh, two of the hottest sort of button topics in the legislation are, of course, the eminent domain piece, as well as the nine-person panel, uh, the presidentially appointed panel, by the way. And uh, there was a lot of, I would say, some political gamesmanship happening at the House press conference that was uh, held recently with Representative Burchett, Luna, Moskowitz, Gates, Burleson, and I forget the last gentleman's name, but he was so partisan that I hard time, had a hard time following along with what he was saying. Uh, but uh, the the points that were being made there reminded me that even though this has been a bipartisan issue, once we get a little bit further along with this, the partisan politics will still come into play. And you have to remember, if we're going into an election year and you're of the opposing party to the incumbent, how much do you, how many wins do you want to give the, the incumbent? Do you want them to have a presidential panel? Do you want them to be the president to reveal and to disclose? Maybe you don't. Uh, on the other hand, maybe you do. Maybe it's one of those things where if you're the president who has to disclose this, maybe people would prefer some sort of other lead leadership to step in and, and do deal with it. So. I brought up a whole lot of stuff there. That That's the mix that we're dealing with right now. Uh, I don't think the legislation is unlikely to pass. I just think we don't quite know what the final version will be. But what has been your take on that entire sort of drama uh, and wh whether or not we're moving in the right direction with, with that particular aspect of it? Right. So we've been saying for several episodes now that the Schumer Amendment is kind of the ace up our sleeve when it comes to this move towards disclosure, that everything else happening, while important, is pale in comparison to how consequential this could be. And that speaks to why some of these forces on the inside and the intelligence communities and within the DOD and whatnot are really pushing back pretty intensely, including the contractors, of course, that would be subject to this eminent domain clause. So basically with eminent domain, the sense is that regardless of what fast and loose agreements were made between the military industrial complex on the government side and these contractors back in the day, decades ago, there was a sense that that was done inappropriately. And eminent domain basically says, regardless of what the original agreements were, regardless of whatever degree of legality was tied to those, now once eminent domain comes into effect, then effectively it's new law, new situation in which the government could take back that technology and use it on behalf of the American people. At least that's supposedly what's supposed to happen. Now, of course, because we live in a capitalistic system, these contractors look at that and they go, well, what about all the costs that have been entailed in housing these incredibly top secret materials and craft and all of the work we put into it with the expectation that we could have 
monetary gain from the intellectual property and material design and whatnot that we gain from this? And how is that fair that you can just take it back? I get that in the same way that if you have property, you and I have property, and the government decides to widen the road, they can pay us the fair market price and we can't really say no. Uh, it's different than if a private contractor wants to buy you out that you can say no. But when the government says it and it's eminent domain clause, then that's basically an absolute. So you can understand why that pushback is happening. I'm not saying I support that pushback or think it's justified. I, I think it's much too narrow a scope to focus on that and monetary gain in the short term rather than considering the civilization changing matters that are entailed in this entire process. But that's what's happening there. And as some people who are trying to be sort of exercise real politic here in terms of what would be a win, some people are saying, well, let's tackle that next year. Let's make sure the most important parts get passed into law. Let's not lose the good in trying to chase after the perfect here. So we'll see what happens there. And yeah, the nine-person panel, there have been some ruminations around concerns that this basically would duplicate processes that are already happening with Arrow and whatnot. But really, that doesn't seem like a, a fair characterization of what that panel would include. And of course, many people would argue that how this actually rolls out is very much tied to what that nine-person panel decides and then briefs the president with, who will then brief the American people. So how you take that out doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I've heard some people raise concerns that what if that nine-person panel, rather than being this multidisciplinary group of people from academia and various social circles and maybe even religious figures, what if it ends up being appointees from within the military-industrial complex, then we're back into the whole loop again. We never seem to be able to escape. But there really is a sense that the problem with Arrow and that process is that it's been sort of an in-house kind of critique and investigation of the House. I don't mean the House of Representatives. I mean the military-industrial complex. And therefore, it's biased and, and might very well be set up to never really get to the root of the matter. So with the Schumer Amendment, the goal is to take it outside of those circles. So there can be this democratically led goal to uncover what's really been happening. I think one thing I could do to sort of give people the summary of the most recent understanding of where this is all going, as Steve Bassett posted to social media earlier today, his sense of where things stand, because as you pointed to, there was the Tim Burchett amendment that sort of came out, suggestion of what we should do. And there was initially concern that he was wanting to do away entirely with the Schumer Amendment and replace it with his. Later on, it became clear that it actually was meant to be an add-on and a further clarification. Some people even, you know, speaking of AI, uh, alleged that it looked like he'd used ChatGPT to write, the, <laughs> write it overnight, which who knows, right? Kids do that these days for their essays. But this is basically Steve Bassett's summary of where things stand. Quote, the Burchett Amendment was a good faith effort to provide some simpler direct language vis-a-vis -vis the very complicated Schumer Amendment. It was not being set up to replace it. The UAP Disclosure Act will stay in with significant changes. It is a very contentious process. The targets are the eminent domain section and the subpoena powers and the Presidential UAP Review Board. The UAP Disclosure Act is a powerful bill and we want it as is but resistance from defense contractors and secret keepers will likely prevail. There will be changes. Of three areas of contention, the one with the best chance to remain intact is the Presidential UAP Review Board. Focus on that. Here is now the approach to take. Contact Republican and Democratic conferees with a softer message. 
You support the UAP Disclosure Act and want it passed with as few changes as possible. You strongly support the UAP Review Board. Consider using cooler language. Whatever the final language in the UAP Disclosure Act, it will be a huge win for the disclosure movement. If you want to support the House version language put forward by Tim Burchett, do so. It will likely be adjusted as well to not conflict with the Senate version. And then he goes on. Basically, that is a summary of how he sees the process right now. He obviously is arguing for real politic to be exercised here and focus on what we can get past, recognizing that whatever does get passed will be a major win compared to the historical process up until now. Yeah, I think it has to be, and it won't be the the final victory either. Uh, I know that uh, Joe Rogan recently had David Grush on his show, and Grush made a statement to the effect of, uh, if, if the Schumer Amendment doesn't pass, then we're kind of in, in bad, bad shape, like this isn't going to happen or whatever. And that's in a little bit conflict with, I think, what his attorney said at the Seoul conference was that if it doesn't pass, don't be too discouraged. So I think it's a mixture of both. It's obviously incredibly important and uh, will, will be a watershed moment for this topic in, in the United States. Um, and I was struck by the real kind of heft of the moment itself just by watching that press conference uh, the, the other day because every single one of those members of the House who got up to that podium, maybe except for one, uh, spoke with a level of conviction that this needed to happen. And that was a signal to me that we've gone from just mere curiosity to commitment. And think about that. That's big. It's not just, oh, I, I, maybe we have something. I don't know. I'd like to know what it is. To I, We have something. The government is not telling us everything. And we, the people of the House, deserve to know more than what we've been told. That was very clear to me in that press conference. And I am deeply encouraged by that. Uh, and when you couple that with the language, the incredibly strong language that we have from the Schumer Amendment itself, uh, you start to paint a very compelling picture that we're moving into new territory with, with this subject and, and into places that we've never been before with a level of commitment to disclosure that we've never seen before. And keep in mind, as many have pointed out, the Schumer Amendment in itself is a type of disclosure. Its very existence is a type of disclosure. So uh, I think we're we're in for a wild ride. Uh, I don't know exactly you know how many places this is going to go, but I'm excited about it. I agree, and I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said we really need to recognize there's been a turning point. That it's one thing to say, in the interest of democracy, we're going to continue to knock on doors just in case there's something there. They're clearly beyond that. They're saying there is something there. You still get some people like Democrat Jared Moskowitz who are still careful to say, we're not saying this is aliens. We don't know that. But there's something here. And if it were the case that nothing was there, why would we continually get this door slammed in our face whenever we just simply ask for transparency? Something is being covered up. What the nature of it is, we're not saying we've concluded yet. But nevertheless, the process must continue in the interest of democracy. And as you and I talked about before we went on the air, it's almost a little bit humorous. I don't think anybody 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, would have pictured these fairly rookie Congress people coming in and undoing the work of MJ-12 that goes back decades and decades. It just is almost farcical in how it's happening. And you almost have to blink twice just to make sure this is real life. 
But I w- I've highlighted a few quotes here that Representative Anna Luna has made recently publicly speaking to this process and where things stand. She said, first of all, quote, we are dealing with an orchestrated attempt to suppress UAP transparency. This attempt appears to be coming from the intelligence community, unquote. So he's basically saying, not only is it happening, but who is responsible? She also said, quote, mid-level unelected bureaucrats, staffers, don't get to tell members of Congress they can't access information about UAPs, unquote. Now, you and I have talked about this, and I think part of the frustration for the average person is, how exactly does this classification work, these need-to-knows? It does seem to make sense that people who are elected by the American people would have some say in these matters. How can they keep using American taxpayer funds to fund these programs if they don't even know the nature of the programs? Absolutely, that's the case. On the other hand, we know that because of the Cold War and concerns about Soviet spies and whatnot, the degree to which these black programs are kept in the black is a really dedicated attempt to make sure nothing leaks out. So there has been a blinding of the democratically elected parts of government from some of these deeper state kind of aspects to it. But what's being recognized, I think, more than ever before is that while that did serve a proper historical role within a certain context, it's been completely abused, blown up into this default situation, which is completely untenable, and that's what needs to be rolled back. The last thing I want to quote here that she said was, quote, the American people are not stupid. We can handle this information. Other countries have declassified similar information, and it's time the U.S. stepped up to the plate and did the same, unquote. Now, while I applaud her spirit there, I do think she's maybe missing some things there. What some other countries have disclosed is very different than what the American system has under the surface, basically, because we have controlled the situation so much that we've basically dictated to other countries how they should respond. We've made arrangements across the planet that when there is a crash that happens, we will go in and elected members of those governments in those countries don't even end up being briefed. It's just the military to military kind of agreement. So there's a lot of back channeling and deep state arrangements here that I think, again, as I've pointed out before, house this massive beast and how this beast will actually respond once it's actually exposed the sleeping dragon will be an interesting matter in itself. I think also he says we can handle this information. Again, that's an open question because she doesn't know what's entailed. And there's a certain assumption that gets brought to this that people live under a certain reality set for a long period of time, and then they learn there's something they have not heard about. And they assume it's going to be more of the same to a large degree. But of course, as you and I have talked about, and there's a lot we've talked about that I haven't even spoken about publicly and we haven't discussed on the show, this is much more consequential than people realize. And so I think she's being a bit naive there, but nevertheless, this is where we are at. These fairly green Congress people taking on the powers to be, so to speak, and on behalf of the American people, trying to finally get this dragon under control. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to see the fight there. It's exciting to see uh, folks that are really stepping up to the plate and and trying their hardest to make this happen. I also echo what you're saying there that they're a little bit green behind the ears. Uh, it's maybe not a coincidence that they're green and they're pushing for this. They're sort of uh, maybe the, the 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 kids in the china shop rather than the bull, just kind of getting in there and wrecking things without realizing how valuable the things might might happen to be, but perhaps that's what we need in order for uh, you know things to really change here. I also want to point out one one thing that has 
been rarely mentioned, and that's that um, even if we do have legislation that, that is passed, keep in mind that all of the government agencies named in that legislation have to comply with it within the way that they think that they should. And the reason I want to point that out is that I have a long history of, work, of my work experience is with a particular government agency. And there is very specific legislation about how that agency is supposed to operate. And when you're reading it, it sounds very clear. Like this is what they should do in this scenario X, Y, Z. But in what happens in actual reality is very subjective and interpretive. So depending on which administration is in power and the executive, depending on w which bureaucrats are running that agency, you see very different interpretations of how they comply or don't comply with the letter of the law. So I, I point that out to say that it's not like this is going to be some sort of silver bullet that once this passes, oh, all the doors are open and we get to see everything that's there and it's going to be very smooth. I, I really doubt that. I think we're going to see a, a bit of a stilted process, but like we've already seen, we're going to see momentum, continued momentum. So the more and more this becomes normalized, the more individuals who feel more comfortable and confident stepping forward because of this legislation, the more who will follow in their wake. So it's it's going to happen. Uh, it, the question I have really is, how big will the snowball be? Right, and how quickly will it roll down the hill? I think that's right. That's that's the question really is is how this will happen and in what kind of time frame. Because there certainly is too much momentum for it to be turned back or to use the analogy of putting the toothpaste back in toothpaste tube or beyond that at this point. Again, this raises really interesting questions about how it will happen and the sense that the Schumer Amendment will be the method by which we cross the Rubicon in terms of addressing some really consequential matters around the history of our civilization. But as you point out, and it's a really good point, that there's still interpretation involved. And you can see historically, for instance, that even the Atomic Energy Act has been misused as a means to hide some of this information. Because what happens is, turns out, there's a certain radioactive signature when some of these crafts show up. And so because of the wording of the Atomic Energy Act that speaks to any kind of like radioactive isotopes, the secret keepers have said, aha, there are radioactive isotopes with these crafts, so we will lock this away under the Atomic Energy Act, which of course in spirit, speaking of radical transparency again, was all about nuclear weapons and the battle between the Soviets and us in terms of developing these weapons. It had nothing to do with UFOs or UAP or potential craft from extraterrestrial or interdimensional civilizations. Clearly, that was not what was meant with the legislation, but not only can you narrowly define legislation in ways that are you know crafty and useful to you, but you can also be liberal in your interpretation so as to keep something secret that were never meant to be kept secret. And unfortunately, as long as we have a non-telepathic society, the challenge is when we have siloed minds and we basically build laws around words structured in sentences, you're always going to have that in the mix. Again, this is something about the level of our civilization and our stage of development, but that's where we are. And this is, I think, the most interesting question, and one of the most interesting questions is realizing, even as you said, even at that conference yesterday, which by the way, I think NBC News and Fox News were there. So we're seeing slowly an uptick in terms of the mainstream. But even then you saw base partisan language come in at some points. And that just seems so much like kindergarten kind of territory in light of the matters that are on the table here. So on the one hand, you hear 
people talking as if they're really understanding the ramifications here, the implications. Other times, we just see a demonstration of just how low the level of the center of gravity of our consciousness is on the planet. And again, that begs the question, which we can maybe get into later, around are we ready for a disclosure, really? And when people so confidently say that, not only politicians like Luna, but even people within the ufological community that we know, say that absolutely, let's rip the Band-Aid off, it's time to know, it can't be worse than what we already have, that is an open question, I think. And that's a more nuanced question than people are willing to give it credit for. Yeah, on that point, I want to talk a little bit more about this nine-person panel, because uh, to me, it sounds like a great idea, but but along with the point you just made, if we impanel individuals from these different disciplines, uh, from these different life experiences, keep in mind that most of those life experiences and disciplines still fall within a framework of reality that may not be a framework that allows us to understand what this really is. And so they may come to a conclusion that is partially true or even entirely wrong because they're looking at it from one particular vantage point. So I do worry about that a little bit. I, I worry uh, even with maybe some creative thinking there, uh, we're not going to get the full picture because maybe the full picture isn't something we're ready to digest, uh, or at least not the entire world is ready to digest. And so how, uh, and, and I guess to some degree this may be relates to the the involvement of these non-human intelligences than themselves and how involved will they be will they will they also kind of be participating in this to some degree i think we would both argue that they already are in, in a certain way uh but in what way will they continue to to act and behave will it be more overt will it be gradual uh what kind of timeline are we working with here and how long will it take for the world to go through kind of a transformative process to be at a place where they, all of us, can really understand the full scope of what's going on? Yeah, it's a good question because the nine panel board process is basically meant to streamline this into a narrative that can be metabolized by our society. So it basically has to be reduced to a series of bullet points that the president can present before the podium one day. And by the very definition of that, that's going to be a gross oversimplification of an actually incredibly complex barrage of data and speak to consequences that many of those people will not be willing to entertain, may not even be capable of entertaining. Because as you point to, the people that will undoubtedly be chosen for that kind of panel are people that are well-known and are gatekeepers according to consensus reality as it exists now. These are the very people who are the gatekeepers of consensus reality. What I would say, and I'm sure you would agree, and anyone who's really looked into this would agree, this really at its heart undoes the clarity around our current consensus reality. It opens things up in such a way that maybe the very people that will be chosen for that kind of board are exactly the wrong people to be able to really get us to open up and consider new possibilities. Again, I think of a conversation with Bernardo Castro, and he talked about how high strangeness in itself may be nature's way of trying to knock us out of the rut of the thinking we're, we're locked into. 
And again, a nine-person panel that's going to take this barrage of information and reduce it to a series of bullet points to give to the president might be exactly the wrong procedure to really allow for that open-mindedness to set in. So this is definitely something to think about. I think of how we heard again in the lore the sense that the reason why they brought Bob Lazar in was because all of the usual players couldn't crack the nut. They couldn't make sense of this material and reverse engineer some of this technology. And supposedly, according to the lore, sometimes they would pick it up every decade to see if they were any closer to be able to even understand how it might theoretically work. And they brought in Bob Lazar because he was an outside-the-box thinker, is how the, the lore goes. So in the same way, maybe half that board should be people who are outside-the-box thinkers, people who would really question many of the notions of consensus reality. But of course, that is not in the interest of the ruling party that wants to have more of the same, that wants to somehow translate this and truncate it into something that's digestible by the mainstream within the parameters of the current model. Right. Will our institutions survive what this actually is? And I, I would argue that they won't. And and that, that and I think that many people would agree they need to change. Uh, so what is the catalyst that allows for that change? This could be it. This could be the one, the one topic that galvanizes the world into a new reality and changes really everything that we understand about the way we have structured our civilization. Uh, you know, rewriting our history books, rewriting our institutions, uh, the way that we think we know things, the way that we relate with one another. Uh, I'm I'm reminded that uh, a nine-person panel who may be some of the smartest people in the world, maybe none of them have had a direct experience with it. So imagine the situation where you've got an acknowledgement that this is real. You've got ivory tower individuals who are, you know, kind of looking at this from a thirty thousand foot view, trying to make sense of it at a meta level to explain, as you said, to come away with some bullet points that can be read at a podium. While at the dinner table, you have a cacophony of experience happening all around the world of people saying, well, I've, I've had this, I've been told this, I, I, yeah, I contextualized it this way. How do you control that? How do you corral that energy in a direction? I think it's going to be very challenging. And, and keep in mind too, those experiencers, often many of them are looking for answers because they don't themselves have them. So it's it's a very complex dynamic of interests, of needs, of uh, really I would call it trauma, but frankly, because there's so much trauma involved in this unfolding. Uh, it, it's going to upend what we understand about ourselves and about the world, our place in the universe, all of these things. And I don't know how we'll come out on the other side. It's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's very uncertain for me. Yes, and I think the open question is, will our society, as it's presently structured, be willing to take the risks it needs to, to welcome and incorporate the changes that are necessary for us to overcome the challenges we are facing? Again, in many ways, over and over again, we are our worst enemies over and over again. And while I understand this goal to arrive at controlled disclosure versus catastrophic disclosure. Again, the question is, how much can you really uncover the truth, deliver the truth, and it be controlled? 
the very nature of the truth itself is so unwieldy. It so calls into question the basic premises of modern society that I don't see how you do it other than by completely truncating the nature of the information so that you do the very minimum to check off the box that you've actually handled disclosure. But again, from the perspective of these others, which again is often not talked about, it's the elephant in the room that people are not talking about. The others, various factions of them with different origin sources are watching. Some have more of a vested interest in how this is handled than others. But the ones that have a vested interest and are watching, the very nature in which we handle this and try to reduce it and translate it into something palatable is in itself immediately apparent to these others that this is insufficient. And again, just shows to them that we are not ready. The very nature by which we plan to handle the process demonstrates our unreadiness. So when people so confidently say, we are ready, let's just do it, rip off the Band-Aid, number one, they don't fully understand what's entailed here, how much this goes to the very biggest questions about the nature of reality and who we are, etc. But also that the very parameters of the process supposedly being put into play here can't possibly handle the electricity and the sheer immensity of the power that wants to come through in terms of unraveling all that is and all that has been in order to create this terrain that can be grown on again, that the, can sort of make the soil fertile for something really transformationally new. So this is where we are. Again, I'm interested in the process. If nothing else, it's a very interesting sociological thought experiment to see what's rolling out. But again, from the perspective of a lot of experiencers who understand some of the deeper energetic moves in consciousness that are entailed in this and recognize just how far-reaching, how deep and broad these rabbit holes go, there's a clear sense that whatever this process unfolds to be, it will not be anything close to the fullness of what's involved here. And so it's a real open question, where will this take us? And while the Schumer Amendment is groundbreaking in so many ways, it still, to me, leaves open the question of how will the rest be brought in, though? As you pointed to, this points to accords, agreements. It points to hybridization, abductions, including abductions supposedly under the knowing watch to some degree of previous administrations or certainly within certain groups of the military industrial complex. It's wrapped up in the Manhattan Project and the entire major movements of the machinations of 20th century American history and global history. How you possibly roll that out in a way that a president can deliver in a few bullet points over a couple of briefings isn't clear to me. And again, maybe that's the the biggest challenge to this entire process is that we still think that we can deliver this information without tearing down the system and building from the ground up. I think it's clear to me that we can't. It's clear to these others, the most ascendant ones, that we can't do that either. And that's why for many of them, and again, I understand this is a an unpopular opinion at this point, but for many of the most ascendant ones that have the most benevolent intention towards us, they are in a way anti-disclosure because we are fundamentally just not ready. And the very nature of the equation that I just described there, and you've been describing in terms of how this is even being proposed to being handled, is woefully insufficient to deliver the real potentiality that is on hand here. And again, this comes down to consciousness over and over again, as I keep saying. Mm -hmm. We have to avoid the kind of madness. At the same time, I want to acknowledge the importance of facing 
difficult things and not ignoring our trauma, but, but working through our trauma. And I think that's something that we're not very good at doing, but we must become good at doing it because this will be traumatic for all of us. We need a language to cope with it, to incorporate it into our collective psyche. Uh, this is just not something that we have been trained to do. Uh, most of us have been taught to hide our hurts, uh, to ignore uh, our, 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 you know, our the voices in our head that kind of talk down against us or whatever, and and not deal with these shadow aspects of our of ourselves. And this is a big shadow in our civilization that we're going to have to come to grips with. That keep in mind, we've really built in a, a wall around a big portion of the human experience for the last several centuries. Uh, our, everything that we champion in terms of our, our knowledge and our science and our progress, like all of these great, great things that we have constructed have kind of put that other side of ourself in, in the corner and told it that it can't come out and it's got to stay over there. And whatever this is, is part of that. And, and until we can come to face it and work with it and not work with it just for our own person, but, but together, because this is going to be a collective challenge. This is not something that, you know, sort of, oh, let me process this and let me figure this out. This is something that every one of us will have to work through together. So how are we going to do that? Especially in a world that we live in now, where most of us have our attention fixated on, on a piece of technology all day long. So a lot of challenges here. And I, look, I, I bet folks who are listening are probably, you know, pretty frustrated because we sound fairly down on this, but I, I just think we're being realistic. We have to be mindful of how impactful that this will be. And I'm not saying let's not do it. I think maybe we kind of have to, but I'm saying it's going to be hard work and we need to be prepared to do it, to do that work. Indeed. And what I would say is that I think the approach of many of the most descendant of these others is to tackle this through a grassroots approach where there are these nodes of consciousness around the planet that are being tuned up and turned up and augmented in such ways to be able to host a higher vibrational frequency of consciousness energy so as to begin to impact the planet and the civilization upon it. Now, again, I know some people coming from a more nuts and bolts perspective will feel lost with that kind of language, but this is really what's in play here. And you and I were talking about this before we went on the air, that really this is about a consciousness revolution. And the reason why I feel so called to essence of being and helping people make those moves in consciousness is because I recognize that this is fundamentally necessary. And not only necessary, but it's the only way we're really going to make this kind of transition, that we have to fundamentally change our understanding of who we are, how we're connected to each other, how we're connected to the planet. And then we expand that scope to how we're connected to this cosmic community. But if we already have a fundamental misunderstanding about who we are, how we're connected, how we relate to the planet, then there's no way we will have the right perspective on how to relate to these others. And they recognize that too, the most ascendant of them. 
So that's why for me, the real excitement, because you just talked about it sounding a bit like a downer in terms of our perspective on official disclosure, but this ramping up and this growing of a network of consciousness development across the planet done by people led by interaction with these others and whatnot, that's the part that gets really exciting to me. And I see evidence that that's definitely happening. I look back at the fruit of the course and all of the things that are happening around that, and I see clearly that people are ready, people are primed, people are, they have curiosity online, and there's this sense of a deep, deep memory that this is who we really, really are, that we've been living under a bit of an illusion and we're kind of waking up almost like, again, the Matrix analogy, the film here, where we just somehow know that something's wrong with the world, something's wrong with the configuration energetically as it has been presented to us. And some of this goes back to memories we have as very, very young children of when we began to buy into or be forced into this configuration that never felt quite right. And so for many of us, as we awaken these capacities in ourselves, the capacities I talk about in terms of psychic intuition and this porous nature to our own consciousnesses that allows us to tune into each other and tune into the planet and larger cosmic community, all of those capacities, there's a certain vague memory we have deep down, almost all of us, that yes, that's the way things really are. And somehow we lost sight of that. And that there is, again, definitely a certain collective insanity to the way that we currently configure as a civilization. Again, when you just step back for a second and you say, we have many, many, many thermonuclear weapons pointed at each other, the same civilization, the same extended family. It's like you and I saying, just in case Nathan ever crosses me, I'm going to point a thermonuclear weapon at his house in Asheville or our uncles or our aunts. It's just so absurdly insane. We, we have lived under in our entire lives. People like you and I have grown up when the Cold War was going on and, and it's always been the world we've known. There's a certain radioactivity everywhere, every square inch of the planet you walk on because of nuclear tests that were done in the 20th century. It's total insanity. And we have to look at that in terms of where we are and being ready for this cosmic community. So the good news is, while we should be, I think, somewhat realistic, as you say, to use your word around the official process towards disclosure, we can all be a part of this organic movement to waking up our own consciousness, waking ourselves up to what already is in terms of the interconnected, vibrant nature of this cosmic community. And in so doing, we become the fertile soil for disclosure to really happen because it's about who we fundamentally are, who they are, how we're connected, all of these things. That's really what disclosure entails. The rest is kind of icing on the cake. And again, I understand for nuts and bolts people, that would be a big transition to make. But any of us who've really gotten into this and many of us who are experiencers completely recognize this is what it's ultimately about. And I would say the people, as I was saying to you before I went on the air, that I would consider the most far along in terms of having a hybrid nature, being very connected to this network of consciousness, they see this primarily as an energetic spiritual enterprise, much less about the nuts and bolts and the historic enterprise around UFOs and UAP. That's part of it, but that's really window dressing compared to the underlying move in consciousness that's happening. So as we are approaching this singularity point, it seems, around, as you pointed to, we spend more time staring at these little devices in our hands than we do being focused on touching base with the interconnected web of life all about us. And that actually these little devices in our hand distract us from that. We end up spending decades of our lives looking at these things rather than tuning into what we actually are and what a aberration that is in consciousness. So 
I think we should be realistic about what the official process will provide, but also be excited about and enter in with enthusiasm and almost like childlike wonder the possibilities that arise as we join together in this exploration of consciousness. Right. And I would ask us to really spend some time thinking about why is it that we have created these technologies? Why is it that we want to be so connected to information and to everything that's happening in the world around us? Why is it that we are so fixated and fascinated by you know, our own selves and this sort of n- narcissistic cycle that we've created with our devices kind of mimicking our inner desires? You know, why do we have these impulses and, and why have we decided to uh, you know, sort of satiate them with technology other than, than something else. And I would argue it's a lot like uh, sort of shortcuts that we tend to take in the world today as well. You know, that, that it's instead of me doing the hard work of you know, putting in the, the time in the gym or exercising whatever to be, to be healthy, you know, I'm going to just take a shortcut by taking a pill or something of that nature to get there. And I think the technology we've created is doing something very similar, that it's a proxy for our true capability. And my worry a little bit, to be honest, is that as the more the time goes on, the more that the more comfortable we become with these technologies, the more pervasive that they are in our world. And and look, I'm just as tethered to the thing as everybody else. But the longer that goes on, the harder it will be for us to remember what it was like without them. And I, I think those of you who've, who've been around uh, the world long enough to remember the days where we didn't have this stuff everywhere will tell you that, that things were different, that you, know, you, you got bored, but you spent time with people. You had to work through things uh, in a way that you don't now. And, and look, I, I don't think all of our technology is bad. I just think that it's, it's kind of covering up in many ways, our true capacities. And so, I mean, in some ways, wouldn't one of the greatest things that ever happened just be an EMP that goes off and you know, shuts off all the phones for a while and imagine how we would, obviously the whole world would sort of fall apart. But if you think about some of the most meaningful times in your life, at least in my own life, what's the character and quality of those moments? Is it you, you know, sort of staring at a computer or is it you witnessing the, the, the joy of life and being present to those that you love and who love you? Is it, is it being immersed in the present moment? I would hope that all of us would, would have some experience like that, that you can paint and you can point back to. And that can be a reminder of what, it, it, of what really matters. So, uh, you know, to your point, and the point I want to make here is that, you know, we, we've become very fixated on the UFO as this, uh, you know, pinnacle of technology. It's going to save us. It's going to solve all of our problems and free energy and, you know, down with these evil monopolies and, and you know, all this stuff. It, yes, but, and, it's not just that. And if we go into it with just that mentality, we're not going to come out of it any better than we are right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the key thrusts behind what we plan to do with the John Mack Institute in the future is this recognition that we need a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, we need to reconsider the economic model we're living under, the priorities we set as a civilization, the structure of our civilization and what that provides in terms of a seeding ground for the growing of human beings. So we need those infrastructure considerations and we need a new model. But that alone will not be sufficient. And this is where my essence of being initiative comes in, is a sense that unless we fundamentally reorient around who we are, how we're connected, and how we are a part of the earth, not just something that takes from the earth, but we are a product of the earth. We are the earth to some degree. Unless we can see things that way in that kind of holonic perspective where we are all a thing to ourselves, but part of something larger and you can keep scaling that up. Until we see that, we are fundamentally living under an illusion. And illusions have this tendency to collapse on themselves eventually because reality is what is regardless of what you want it to be. So if we continue to fix the models, but not fix this underlying false orientation around who we are and what everything is about, then inevitably the model will always collapse on itself because it's rotten at the core. So this sense of changing our understanding of who we are is central. And to your point, when we spend so much time on devices, whether we feel like it's a great day because we can go into Netflix and stream things for three hours straight and watch seven seasons in four and a half hours or something, and then we say, that was great. Now I'm going to head upstairs and get on my phone and then just you know scroll for another two hours, and then go to sleep and think that this is a fruitful human life and think that we somehow are better off than our ancestors who had to slave away taking care of crops and things like that or hunter-gatherers. Are we really? Are we really further ahead? How much are we willfully distracting ourselves from the most important things? There's conversations around some of these not so mature others, I would argue, rather than evil, it's more about lack of maturity, that want to sow division. Absolutely they do. But how much are we willing participants by just living lives that are filled with distraction primarily? And how different would we be over time if we took that time? And again, this is not about judgment. It's about just being honest about the way things are and having curiosity and imagination around what could be, what could be different. And just because consensus reality has involved us being focused on these devices and thinking that technology is going to be our ultimate savior, rather than buying into that consensus reality, while at first it's difficult to separate yourself from that and swim upstream, if you begin to, then you suddenly have this overflowing sense of possibility that arises and around human potential. So essence of being is fundamentally about human potential and potential around actually who we already are. And this is fundamental to it. This is also part of Vedantic and Buddhist circles and whatnot, the sense that the way things actually are is filled with, infused with radical transparency. And it's only untruths and accepting facsimiles like cell phones rather than relationship that prevent us from seeing what really is. And what this is really about is reorienting around seeing reality as it really is, where everything is intrinsically interconnected. And that that not only changes how you see the other, but it changes your sense that that person or that being is another. And one thing that comes into this here, I know we're getting very philosophical here, but is this notion of collective consciousness. So a lot of people, especially in American society, 
there's this narrative around the rugged individual, right? We think of the the Marlboro Man and that kind of thing in our in our history, but of course that is a falsehood, and we need to just call it out for what it is. Because when we act like individuals that are rugged and independent that way, we are like cancer cells, effectively, that have misrepresented and misunderstood and misapprehended our role within a body. A body needs to act harmoniously with all its constituent parts so that it is healthy and vibrant and growing. And when we act like rugged individuals, we are like that cancer cell. So all that is to say, again, what's before us right now is an opportunity. We can always choose to see things from that perspective, move in that direction, and become enlivened by what comes alive for us. And it's our birthright. And ironically, what we're seeing here is in the midst of all this and all the turmoil in the world and the strife, just thinking about how much we could take charge of our own lives and enact change just by changing some of our habits. And it doesn't have to be, I'm done with technology, right? I'm going to unplug and go live with Amish. You know, like it, it doesn't have to be that. It can be just small steps of taking back a bit of time where we meditate, where we spend time connecting to people, really being present to what's arising in that person's personhood right now, rather than reflecting on some cached memory of who they were five years ago, and being alive and expectant that reality is emergent and that new possibilities are coming online all the time. And things will only be the way they've always been if we continue to believe that will be the case. So again, we are the architects of our own futures in many ways. And I think what we're calling all of us to do here is recognize that we can take disclosure to some degree into our own hands if we will begin to think differently about some of these matters. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I have so much more to say about that, but I'm not going to, because I want to transition to something that, speaking of devices that you sent me last night, and I want to pull it up, so I want to get it exactly right how you put it. This is what I get from Darren sometimes, folks. Uh, it's a one. It's a one... One sentence, crazy experience tonight, double exclamation point. That's all I got. Uh, so, Darren, you got to you gotta tell me more uh, about this crazy experience that you had last night. What's going on? Okay, so let me give you some context here. After it happened, I reflected on whether or not I wanted to publicly talk about it, and I had the sense that I should, and that not only the event itself is relevant, but the context leading up to it is relevant as well. And the context is key, actually, because again, there's this kind of synchronistic storm that arises. And one of the things that you will remember from the class is that when you have agents of consciousness coming together to operate as a unit of consciousness, as a coherent field of consciousness, you start noticing all these synchronistic impulses arising all around us. And it helps to ground in each of us the sense that something is really happening, that when we come together with shared intention, reality seems to respond to us, which again speaks to Carl Jung's notion that basically synchronicity speaks to the fact that consciousness is primary and physical reality basically is the manifestation of the movements, of the dynamics of the underlying system of consciousness. So all that is to say, what has been happening for me over the last couple of weeks, just like is the case over the last couple of years, led up to the experience last night. It was not a one-off. That's really important to point out. Now, I want to say before I go into this that prior to this event, because I even on social media mentioned that this was the craziest thing I've ever seen and I've seen some crazy things. And I'll speak to that a little bit first because 
People will remember that I talked about being at the Monroe Institute last year for this private retreat and us having these successful attempts with CE5 or HICE. And I also pointed out that sometimes these objects in the sky or these phenomena can be quite subtle. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you could actually miss it because you need people who understand what a satellite looks like, what Starlink looks like, what the moon looks like, what a planet looks like, etc., to be able to notice sometimes when things are doing anomalous things. In other words, you don't always see a hundred foot you know, saucer above you or a cylinder that broadcast everyone that this is a alien craft. What you have is phenomena, often light phenomena, behaving in a way that seems intelligently controlled and not taggable as any of the usual players in terms of satellites or planets or what have you. So that was my first real incident of, of seeing something happen that was anomalous in the sky. I'd had many encounters in terms of basically internal dynamics and through meditation and whatnot that had happened over time, even protocols that had been inspired in me. But that was the first time I saw something in the sky like that. Of course, everyone knows by now the experience I had in the hotel with the with the being. And again, that was an in-person interaction. It had nothing to do with a UFO or something in the sky. And then later last year, I had an experience where I was at the home of a well-known experiencer and had an even more dramatic experience than the one at the Monroe Institute, where basically at one point, I know that you'll remember this, it was like a quarter of the sky lit up suddenly. And it's the kind of thing where you immediately recognize, even though three of us present could all see it and talked about it, there's just no way the rest of the city is seeing that. Because if they were, everyone would be like calling the police or the fire department and saying, what the heck was that? And again, that speaks to the degree to which our reality construct is is wielded, uh, power is wielded by some of these others to construct the entire environment. And they can do it in a catered way for one person or three people, and it'd be different for somebody else. Which again, I think underlyingly speaks to the fact that this is more like a dreamscape, which speaks to idealism versus physicalism again. So that's sort of the last experience I had like that. I had one more experience where, you might remember this, we did a group of four of us were meeting last summer. And after one of those sessions, it was around 10 o'clock at night or something, I had the sense that I should drive up on the Blue Ridge Parkway, just had this telepathic kind of download. Of course, as I've said before, those kind of really picked up after the Monroe event. So I went up the Blue Ridge Parkway up near Mount Pisgah. And after waiting for a while, not seeing anything, I was getting ready to go back in the car, load it back up and hadn't seen anything. And just that moment, I saw an orb go across above me and looked around and nobody else seemed to have noticed it. So again, you have that sense of this is specifically catered to one person and this is the, the power that they wield. And it again, raises interesting questions about what is the nature of reality, the fabric of reality that we think is a physicalist kind of thing when it's really not. Okay, so that leads up to what happened last night. But before I get there, I want to talk about the synchronistic underpinning that led up to that. Because again, if reality is basically about what we perceive as physical reality and the events of our lives are actually the manifestation of these underlying moves in consciousness, then we should not be surprised when we really engage with these underlying moves in consciousness and respond with positivity and intention that we will see that play out in our lives. And this has to do with manifestation and the kind of things that people talk about. So earlier in the day, I had been listening to this interview with uh, Sinead Wellahan, and she is a Canadian woman who had always been interested in consciousness. She had had various experiences, but nothing to do with the UFO phenomenon, which again, this will speak to 
again, really synchronistically in a really interesting way, what we were talking about earlier in terms of this being about much more than the UFO phenomenon. So she had always been interested in spirituality and consciousness, but not really anything to do with UFOs or aliens. And she had actually gone to Peru to take part in an ayahuasca ceremony. And as you know, and many of our audience will know, DMT is the psychoactive ingredient in ayahuasca. And there's this really interesting aspect of the phenomena where sometimes psychedelic experiences become the gateways for people to encounter different beings, not just different realms, but beings that seem ontologically real and independent. So she found to her complete shock, she said the first night she took ayahuasca, nothing happened. The second night, nothing happened. The third night, she tried a little bit of a higher dose. And sure enough, she suddenly found herself awake inside a UFO. So having had no history with UFOs, no interest in UFOs or aliens, she suddenly found herself, to her shock, inside a UFO. And to her surprise, these beings responded very positively and friendly and saying, yay, you finally found a way to, to meet with us. We've been waiting for you. And there was this really kind of celebratory kind of notion to the entire experience. So then she came back from this experience and she'd had a series of really crazy experiences like this, where it was beginning to fundamentally change how she saw reality. And so she basically... And it's funny, I remember hearing about this in our church circles back in the day. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but there's this notion of putting a fleece before the Lord, mm -hmm. which was a way of saying, if this is your will, then show it to me this way, right? This will happen. And so sometimes in the UFO phenomenon experience, people do the same thing. They say, some crazy things have been happening. I don't know if I'm going crazy or if this is real. If it's real, if you're real, then give me a sign, basically, right? Right. And I think it would pretty much be the same process, basically. So she had said this to these others, if you're real, if I'm really experiencing you, then please give me a plain as day sign. So she talked about, she had been a school teacher previously, and she accepted this position where basically she was marking these creative writing essays that 10 and 11 year old Canadian kids were writing. And it was her job to basically examine their grammatical level and that kind of thing. And she was supposed to just mark these and looking for those things. The essay topic was write about the day you became famous. And at one point she said to these others, I really want a sign, give me something to know that you're real. And then she later in the day went into this warehouse where they would, she would grab a stack of these essays that had been written and she's just supposed to mark them for grammar level. And to her shock, over the next 45 minutes, every single essay was something like, when the aliens landed, I learned this about consciousness. Next essay, when the aliens landed, I learned how zero point energy could change our reliance on fossil fuels. When the aliens landed, I recognized that we're all connected. All, what Every single one in that 45-minute period was about this topic. She got the point. Mm -hmm. This was her, her uh, confirmation. Now, again, then she kind of got the point. She, I think she used the bathroom or something, came back, and then everything was back to quote-unquote normal, where all the essays were a variety of topics around this notion of when I became famous. So again, I want people to think about what that means for, for reality what kind of power these wield, and not just in terms of they're so powerful and we're so weak, but more about what does this say about the nature of reality? What are we missing and how consensus reality is constructed and presented to us right now? Anyway, that was her point. So after this, I remember saying, you know, I would like, I've had some crazy things happening in my life the last couple of years. I also would like a really clear sign of a certain type that I've not seen before. That was kind of my, my delivery my fleece before whatever this is. Mm. And I kind of left it there. But I will say this, 
you may remember that in my conversation with James Ian Dolly, we both talked about how sometimes when certain things happen, you have this sense, the sensation that you feel that tells you it's happened. So when I put this sort of fleece out before these others for some sort of interaction that would be confirmational, I had the sense that there was sort of like a handshake agreement, that something had happened energetically. It speaks to intention and manifestation. And so then later that night, I was going for a walk and talking on the phone. And often at night, we'll walk around the roads around this cabin community. Many of the cabins are, are second homes for people. So at any given time, probably 75% of the cabins are not occupied. And so I just get to walk around in this forest and have the lights of the cabins shining through all these majestic trees. And it's a really profound experience. And I can look up at the sky and of course, sometimes see things in the sky more along the nature of what had happened at the Monroe Institute, where you sometimes see these tiny pricks of light doing things that are kind of interesting. But I proceeded to leave my cabin, was talking on the phone with somebody that I've been practicing radical transparency with, by the way. And that entire process has been a major seed in what Essence of Being has become, by the way. So I'm walking down the street and at the end of the street, there's kind of this overlook where I go away from the trees and I can now really see the starry expanse in front of me and the mountains behind that. And no sooner do I get to the end there as I'm talking on the phone that suddenly this ball of light goes right across above me. And it didn't look like a shooting star. It didn't look like a meteorite. It didn't look like, definitely wasn't a satellite. It was much too big for that. Probably the size of like a dime, like held out at arm's length in terms of going right across the sky, just a bright ball of light. And I remember saying to her on the phone, wow, I just had a crazy experience. I don't know what that was. But that felt like something that's not natural, quote unquote natural. So I reflected on that for a moment, for a few moments, and then was like, okay. And then proceeded to start walking around the different streets and continued to talk to her for, for, for about 45 minutes. Then I made my way back up to that same area and walked down the same street again, came to that same point at the end where it opens up to where the star expands with the mountains behind it. And this time in the exact same trajectory as before. So in the exact same place in the sky and following the exact same trajectory as before, I saw what was a very apparently a full-on craft. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that before. So it was a basically circular shaped craft as if I was seeing the bottom of a, of a disc. And the way it was lit up was preposterous because it didn't even make any sense. Like you might think of like a meteorite coming back into the atmosphere and then you see like the burning on the front end kind of thing. You might see a trail. But this was really bright green, orange, and purple in, in three segments along the front of this disc. And then the back, I could sort of just see the outline of it. So it was almost like it was mockingly looking like something having a heat signature coming through the atmosphere, but it was more like this ridiculous parade in front of me. Do you see us? And it was really brightly lit with these multicolor kind of display and then then disappeared. So it came into view, flew exactly the same trajectory as the ball of light 45 minutes earlier, and then disappeared. And at that very moment, I had this telepathic sense of, this is the conclusion of the agreement we made earlier in the day, kind of thing. And I then you know used some interesting words to describe how I was feeling on the phone at that moment, and proceeded to spend quite a bit of time talking about that event and how it was different than any event I'd had before. And for me, I've had the sense that I had to get to a certain point in understanding and preparation before certain things would be made manifest before me. 
And so this felt like a kind of a transition in my experience over the last couple of years, which you have probably seen more than anybody else in terms of how transformationally different my life is now than it was a couple of years ago and how spirituality and, and energetic resonance and considerations of consciousness are at the very bedrock of what this entire thing is. And the UFO phenomenon is actually just one subset of a much larger uh, question around what's happening in consciousness in our midst. So there you go. That was my experience last night. Wow. Yeah. Very profound. Um, I mean, it's, it's incredibly cool. And, you know, I just where you landed at the end there, you know, had me thinking about how many of your listeners, a lot like myself, quite frankly, who who came on board with you at the beginning, you know, kind of where you started with this whole journey and and what really brought us to your show and your, you know your very sort of academic approach to aspects of the phenomena and where you are now. It for I can imagine for some of them, uh, you know, it might be hard to hear the things that you're saying because they they are quite different. Um, but it but it I bring that up because it touches on something we talked about before we went on the air tonight about my own life. And that's, I kind of grew up in a, as I've mentioned before, in a religious context, but it was very cerebral. And, uh, you know, I looked at religious experience through a, a kind of very cerebral academic perspective. And what that meant for me personally is I, I, I knew lots of people who had, uh, who had shared religious experiences of all different kinds. And I had friends from, you know, different denominations, some of which were, you know, more into the experiential side than where I, you know, came from. And because I was so uh, predisposed to the academic perspective, I would just kind of write off these experiences as being, you know, not worth my time, not worth uh, really anything other than just the imaginative power to create them. And what I found in my, in my life after living, you know, a few de decades now is that, uh, you can't, you can't do that. You know, you can't just write these things off and, and kind of take this you know, sort of superior, you know, this is where we are right now, right? We're, we're in this culture of academic sort of supremacy where, you know, our cold, hard, objective way of looking at the world, uh, you know, get, gets this very stuffy. Uh, you know, sort of priority seat in front of everything else in the human experience. And for people that are having, you know, whether you call them encounters or, uh, you know, religious experiences of various kinds or anything that, that, that feels incredibly experiential, feeling-oriented, uh, embodied, uh, not cerebral, anything that falls into that, that category, we sort of say, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of quaint and it feels very, you know, sort of outdated. And uh, maybe this is something that our ancestors did, but, you know, we are very, you know, we're, we're now computers. We're just fleshy computers. It's really the world that we've created. And it's the, and, and, and look, this is the world that we've manifested, by the way. Uh, so if you look around us, that that's exactly the world that we have. All that to say is, you know, I've had to come to a place of re-examining that bias and finding that the path to real knowledge is through experience and not the other way around. Because what I believed was that just knowing things about experiences 
and being able to categorize them and itemize them and uh, think about them, philosophize about them. That's what was important. That That's how I would know the truth. When in reality, the truth is emergent from experience itself. And your story for me is, is sort of highlights that. And it's, it's a journey that I've been on and I'm sure some of our listeners have been on. Uh, it, it's not without its challenges. Look, I, I mean, kind of every day that I open up, you know, the, the, the Twitter app or social media, or whatever, just to kind of check in the con, the conversation, I still have to fight this bias, you know, of people who've had experiences and I still kind of, and there's, there's a voice in my head that says, well, I don't know about that. You know, that I'm not so sure. Uh, so I hope that that my, that my personal experience there is helpful in some way to, to, to some people because I, you know, I'm not done. I don't have the corner on the market here. I haven't got this all figured out, but I have lived long enough and felt like I've learned enough at this point that you, you can't cut off part of who you are to really understand who you are. That's the moment we're in right now. Indeed. And I think about the way that Bernardo Castro talks about it in terms of what we've traded to end up with what we have now. And it speaks to the agentic nature of the process and how we have ended up with exactly what we wanted and then are now beginning to recognize that maybe this is, we should be careful what we wish for. Because he talks about basically modern society, Western society, that has been so influential around the world is influential because we've been able to transform physical reality through technology. And technology has arisen because we can symbolically, we're very intelligent apes that can symbolically think about reality in such a way that we can end up navigating and manifesting new ways that reality behaves. And that has been very fruitful in terms of changing our civilization, extending lifetimes and improving health outcomes around the world. But what we've done in the process though, is that we've made life about quantities rather than qualities, that effectively we've decided that reality is basically just quantitative in nature. And if we can just measure it to ever more specific degrees that we somehow have won the game, which speaks to what he talked about in terms of closure, that we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that we've robbed reality and life of any kind of meaning. Instead, we say, well, it's kind of purposeless and accidental, but at least we will be able to nail down the measurements to the nth degree and have forgotten that, as you pointed to earlier, when you reflected on what are the most meaningful moments of our lives, they almost never involve technology unless it's sort of a means to an end of being in relationship with people. Like, I definitely was thankful that our class could happen for people all around the world because of technology, but it was to serve the point of getting together and, and being together. So this question around qualitative aspects of reality versus quantitative is really essential. And I just want to encourage too, for people who feel like I have not had those kinds of experiences and I would love to have those kinds of experiences. And why don't I have those kinds of experiences that, you know, even there, be careful what you wish for, because there's many people who've been thrown into the mix of these really anomalous experiences and wish they hadn't been. So it's not about one being better than the other, but I think regardless of where you begin, if you think about reality differently, you think about yourself differently, you begin to actually pay attention to the qualities you want to manifest in your life, then you will begin to notice these subtle shifts that can grow ever more present and clarifying in your life where you feel like you can fundamentally change what it means to be human. And as I said earlier, 
I think ironically, as you do that, as each of us does that, we find that we're returning to some sort of knowledge that we always had. And it's almost like waking up from a bad dream when we realize that everything that our modern reality has been based around with, again, quantities rather than qualities is an anomaly, is an aberration from the way things really are. And so, again, I think what we get to in our show and all the work that I try to do is recognizing this and the UFO phenomenon just being one arm of many that can take us here. This fundamental reassessment of who we are, where we're going, and I would argue again, tying things together here, that to overcome the challenges we are facing with this nexus of variables coming together at this really transformational time, we must go through that process. So we can both see it as an invitation and a necessity in order to become what we can be. Absolutely. We're entering a season of the year where many of us have opportunities to be more present to those that we love, uh, maybe even those that we have a hard time being around. <laughs> uh, if you're traveling for, for the holiday, do you have to visit that particular relative's house that you have a difficult time getting along with? You know what I mean. My point there is we have these opportunities in front of us at this time of the year, and it's as simple as starting there. It really is. And, you know, today I, I kind of went through a, a crazy exercise uh, of doing some financial planning about retirement. You know, looking at all these numbers, just like you talked about, uh, all these quantitative things, thinking about, you know, my future and my future with my wife. Fixated on that, not thinking about what that experience will be like you know, hopefully, knock on wood, reaching that stage of life alongside her and, and what that will be like. So it, it's it's almost saying, it's, it's akin to saying like, uh, you know, a marriage is the wedding band, you know. It's almost like what we're doing with the UFO. Yeah. The UFO is is the thing when the marriage is the relationship. And, and think about all the work that that requires and, you know, all these kinds of things. And just as an example. So I would encourage everybody, and I'm saying this for myself as well, that you know our opportunities will present themselves. And you're going to hear that kind of voice. This is how it works for me. I don't use the term download. Maybe I should. I'm not so sure. But for me, I feel this, this urge, this nudge, this thing arising inside that is, says to me, you, know, you should talk about XYZ with this person. You know, I don't know why I didn't go into that you know conversation wanting to do that. And I'm not saying it has to be at UFOs, be of anything. You should talk about this with this person. And when I when I say yes to that, those are some of the most amazing moments that I've had in my life. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that you mentioned that really great analogy about a wedding band referencing a relationship. And again, what's interesting about that as being representative of these other elements of reality too, that a wedding band can also be something that becomes very static and refers to something that was done decades ago that creates a status rather than a relationship. And that relationship is primarily about relating. It's a present tense kind of thing that we have to be active about and alive to. And this again applies in all these different areas that rather than thinking about the UFO phenomenon as just a series of quantitative analyses around objects and cool shapes and cool technology 
think about it as an open-ended arrangement with reality to have new experiences and experiences new qualitative aspects of reality. And as Nathan just said there, the holiday time is a great time to begin to practice a new way of being, for instance, with our families of origin. That can be some of the most challenging times of the year. But think about it rather than something you have to endure as something that could be an open-ended process that makes you aware of new possibilities. That I would say just by being with that possibility that it could be different this time, that instead of just assuming that your aunt or your brother or your mom is going to be exactly like they've always been, go in with an aliveness, being present to what is, what is arising. And I think what you might find, as I've said in the class, is that by you setting that tone, that energetic resonance, they might recognize a difference too. And it can fundamentally change the way you interact. And once you have one or two experiences like that, you begin to recognize how much bandwidth there is for us to be able to play with. And then many of us, all of us, I would suggest even, can begin to have these really magical experiences with reality again. Again, we block our own access. Speaking of disclosure, if we will open our minds and open our hearts to these possibilities, I think we will have a transformational experience. The same things I've been through the last couple of years, everyone else can too in their own way, because there is a way that reality meets you when you choose to be alive and present and expressing what I call your essential energy. So absolutely, now is a great time to begin and it doesn't have to do anything with UFOs necessarily. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's been quite an episode. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I know we went into some pretty personal and, uh, like you said earlier, philosophical territory, but I hope, I feel, hope folks are understanding that this is a, that, that we have skin in the game that, and that you can't, if you're really interested in this, it's not just going to be a surface level thing that they're, they're, you've got to at some point decide how, you know, how in the game you actually are and how it's going to change who you are. And I think that that comes through and what we're trying to achieve uh, with the show. And, and that clearly, if you've been listening to us uh, for, for, for a while now, it's, it's a process. It's a process and it's evolving. And, and what we are doing on the show is different than what we do it did when we were starting. And it's, it's going to be different where we're going. Um, but we don't want to do it alone. We'd like to do it with all of you. And uh, we appreciate your support. It means a great deal to us. We appreciate you sharing the show uh, and, and your words of encouragement. It goes a very long way. Uh, so thank you all for listening. And uh, we look forward to where this conversation will take us. And on that note, may the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.